0: all right welcome we've got freddie wilkinson here in the farmhouse stoking the fire literally right behind us freddie lives two miles up the road i've known him for quite some time since the early 2000s when he and my brother were at middlebury a couple bonfires at my parents' house, a couple trips up to the ravine. I'm sure something, some other trips have come across, but it's pretty cool now in our adulthood to be in such close proximity. Freddy's got a lot of things going on in his life. Um, I don't know where to start. I think he was a professional climber, mountaineer. He's done some really badass routes down in Patagonia, spent some time in Yosemite. I'd like to hear some more about that stuff, but been out in Alaska a bunch. Um, and then here in the Valley, he's, he's done some incredible things. He started up cathedral mountain guides. They do a bunch of, um, services up here in the white mountains, as well as what else he's got going on, producing a movie, filming movies. He's, uh, was out in the Himalaya, lots of cool stuff. And you know, what really, aside from some of the fun stories and, things that Freddie's been up to, I was just, you know, as selfishly as my own personal resource, like he's a guy that can bridge the gap between, you know, in that skiing and mountaineering aspect where Cathedral Mountain Guides and his what he does um, in the mountains as far as ice climbing, rock climbing, that stuff can translate to ski skills that you can take anywhere in the world. Um, so I thought that we could, talk about some of that stuff and and go from there but welcome freddie thanks for having me andrew yeah good to have you what's uh give me the latest what what is what are you working on right now
1: right now i'm uh on i'm on my way down to scarborough maine uh where i uh do the marketing for a climbing gym salt pump uh climbing company that i'm a partner in and that's kind of my day job is is helping uh run the show down there, so, um, got a, got a busy day of meetings, and hopefully I can squeeze in a indoor climbing workout, and, um, and that's about it. And then the other thing I have to do is write a donor letter to some people who are helping, uh, pay for a, a movie. So that's an important one. <laughs>
0: and you've got a couple kids.
1: And I got a couple kids. Yes. Uh, um, Casey, uh, my wife, uh, Janet, uh, Bergman, uh, is, uh, is uh, we have two children together, uh, Casey, who's three and a half, and Oscar, who's about 14 months. So that's a total epic. It um, definitely makes being a professional climber seem easy. And uh, uh, they're, they're a lot of fun, but a lot of hard work.
0: I think all the, the dads listening can certainly relate to that. And that's funny, because like, it's I didn't even mention Salt Pump, but You've so many, literally, have so many things going on. Um, and some of these writing assignments you had last year too with National Geographic. It is a crazy balancing act, but I don't really call it balancing. It's just prioritizing. It's like what's important to you right now. And like some of that stuff is like, well, I have this project. I'm, that's it right now. I'm going to go do that.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know how I really fell into this, this trajectory I'm on, but I've always been pretty ADD and enjoyed having my hands in a lot of different projects. And, uh, I kind of like bouncing around. And I think to a lot of my, my, <laughs> my family, my parents, like when I was in my twenties, they were frustrated with me because they were like, well, well, are you going to be a guide, or are you going to be a you know freelance writer? Just figure it out. And uh, but I, I kind of always keep coming back to the same projects, and it's really fun when you do that to to see how how they've grown, how you've grown, and uh, it kind of lets you form these deeper relationships. So um, yeah, I mean, I I guess uh, it's just been. It's been really interesting, but all of them help each other. So being able to, uh, you know, be involved with Cathedral Mountain Guides and Salt Pump locally, that I, I think of those as my my real, you know, grounding gigs. And especially since we've made a decision to have a family and, and really put down some roots around here, um, those are great. But then... When I do get a a writing assignment or a a film uh, gig going on and I I get to, you know, hop on a plane and go, you know, to the other side of the world, um, you know, and be compensated for it somehow, that's just like the perfect, uh, you know, paid adventure vacation for me, uh, you know, and kind of keeps me from getting in ruts around here.
0: Yeah, it certainly complements the two Complement each other because the grass is always greener when you're out there living out of your backpack for months on end, that burns you out pretty quick. And the same of just being stuck at home in, in the Valley, you get burnt out.
1: It's a small Valley and, and it gets pretty dark for half the year.
0: <laughs> yeah. We're in that right now, <laughs> like just to set the stage, I'm looking out my door and I'm just seeing a lot of bare ground. So for us skiers not good. And I had people come in the shop the other yesterday that spent the day in Rumney, like trying to trying to salvage some rock climbing in January. It was wet apparently. Go figure. Yeah. But yeah. So what's um, bring me back to some of your key moments here in the Mount Washington Valley. Like what sort of like how did you cut your teeth here and what, what areas and kind of tell me about the good old days of like when you're really kind of discovering the white mountains and climbing.
1: Yeah, the the good old days were you know began a long time ago. So my um, my most of my families uh, from the Boston area, and my grandparents would come up here in the '30s. And my great grandparents. And they'd ski like Mount Whittier and and ride the carts up Cranmore, and and uh, my dad grew up doing that, and you know skiing the Wildcat Trail before there was a ski area. So it's it's kind of in my blood. And when I was in middle school, I sort of became disaffected with the normal team sports, and you know tried hockey, tried. Uh, you know, soccer and, and none of that was really, really capturing me. And uh, so in sixth grade, my parents for Christmas hired a EMS guide to take uh, me and my brother and my dad up, up the lion's head trail on Mount Washington in winter. And that was kind of my first real mountaineering experience. And so all through high school, I was coming to the whites, mostly train for mountaineering and, you know, I got into some technical climbing, did things like the Whitney Gilman Ridge over on Cannon and Moby Grape and, you know, presidential traverse and winter and, and, um, kind of did that. And then, um, gradually I, I went down the path more of being a climber than a skier. Um, I'm not sure why that happened, but, I mean, skiing has always been part of the adventures that I've, you know, many of the adventures that I've gone on, specifically in Alaska. And um, I, uh, you know, have had, you know, a handful of really fun backcountry days in in, in the whites uh, over the years. I try to get out a few times every winter. Um, and it's, it, it's just, I think, winter in the whites is a really special uh special time and special experience and skis are probably one of the best ways to enjoy it
0: the yeah and and i got you a kit a couple a few years ago yeah yeah a few years ago and i think my brother has the same skis now with the 94s underfoot or something
1: Okay, interesting. Those Hannibals,
0: but somehow yeah. my brother has an old pair too yeah. now, and he loves those things. Yeah. So when you get out, like what do you – are you still incorporating climbing? Are you just dedicating? Are you doing some of your just straight ski objectives?
1: Yeah, no. Well, this is a good um, – I'm glad you you mentioned uh, your, your brother, Dana, uh, a.k.a. Mad Dog. And uh, Dana lives up in Anchorage now – And we've been climbing buddies for a long time. And, you know, the downside to being an alpinist, quote unquote, whatever that means, uh, if you're trying really technical objectives in the mountains, you end up going and, and sort of spending a lot of time base camping underneath climbs that are really hard and scary, and looking up and looking at the weather forecast and twiddling your thumbs. Uh, should we go tomorrow? Should we wait one more day? And and there's a lot of buildup and sort of poking before you you actually commit. And that's just the nature of the game because it's a very dangerous game. Um, and having done that for 20 years, um, you know, I found myself just wanting to be on an expedition where I can. I can move every day and see more country and, you know, experience the wilderness that way. So I had some ideas for some ski traverses in the Alaska Range that I, I pitched uh, Dana. <laughs> and uh, it all stems back to in 2014, we went to try to climb something on Denali. The weather was terrible. And we were had festered so hard that rather than just getting on the plane and flying back to Talkeetna, we decided to ski out to the road. And that took us over a Cahitna Dome. It was actually the route you guys had tried. And uh, so Andrew has some experience with this. And- yeah,
0: yeah. Just to set the scene there is like up in the Alaska Range, you fly into Denali Base Camp and then... Um, from there, you, I don't know, what's the elevation there? Like 8,000?
1: Yeah, about? yeah, it's about 7, eight, 8, And
0: then from there, you skin up to like your next base camp. You do one kind of still in the Cahiltna Glacier there. And then you make your way up to like the 14 camp. And then you start doing some, maybe one more camp at 17 before like summiting Denali. I don't know. I've never done Denali, but just trying to recount the process of trying to get up Denali from the main route that everyone does. And when was this the trip Dana was tent bound or was that a different one? What was the one that you you're referring to in 2014?
1: This was when we uh, we dropped onto the upper Peters and Glacier. So you sort of took a took a hard left turn off of the, the West Buttress route and uh, skied down into into the uh, Peters Glacier drainage which takes you underneath the Wickersham Wall, and um, you basically end up coming out at Wonder Lake, which is on the north side of the mountain. So it's a sort of a traverse of the mountain, but more going around it than and, over it.
0: And not the standard route.
1: Yeah, no. Um, yeah, once you, you, we, you leave the West Buttress, we didn't see anybody for a couple days. And uh, that was really fun, but... I did it with Fritchie free rides on like black diamond crossbows and clicked into um, spantic mountaineering boots with, you know, it's about a, you know, 50 pound pack. Once you put ice axe, um, sleeping bag, extra personal gear, your share of the tent. Four or five days worth of food, fuel, um, crampons. You need an ice axe and crampons. But most of the time, you're either on skis or walking, so that's all like weight that you're carrying. Most yeah. Harness, of the time. rope,
0: safety gear. It's, it's yeah. A lot of, it's a lot of weight, and people don't realize that. You think your boot foot boot fits good because you've skied skied the shit out of your boots, and then all of a sudden you throw on a 50 pound pack, all of a sudden your boots don't feel so good anymore. It's a big difference, and I encountered that when I went and got, you know, cut my teeth backcountry skiing with Mad Dog in Alaska in 2011, I was borrowing all the gear, and it wasn't, like, horrible gear. I was pretty happy with it, but, you know, I thought the boot was fine. It was a little too small, but as soon as I put a pack on, blisters instantly. It was like, yeah, and we were stopping, like, every chance I could get to, like, air my feet out, let them dry, and it was just a tough learning curve of the winter camping winter uh winter backcountry camping with skis and stuff but you know getting out of the glacier like the traverse you guys are talking about did you guys have you guys didn't have sleds though right you learned learned from our experience to like
1: yeah so andrew and and dana and uh toby and courtney tried it this same route in uh in couple years previous 2012 2012 yeah and but you guys went down with sleds which is like the kiss of death for any I mean if you're gonna drag sleds and I've done a lot of it so I feel qualified here to say it's it's not a ski tour it's a slog and you can use it to get from A to B and get a lot of gear from A to B. So you could set up a base camp and maybe ski things. But you're not doing any meaningful skiing with sleds. It's it's a really challenging.
0: Where sport. where were you during all this decision-making that was happening with my brother <laughs> on this trip? You should have been like, hey, Andrew, come here. I don't know. Come here. No, sh- you, you, what you want to do is this. You want to go set up and pike a glacier and ski the shit out of it for a week straight. Yeah. Cut out this nonsense. Because yeah. what all right, just quickly what happened with that trip is we went, tried to go up and over Cahilna Dome to drop over, to go out the north side <laughs> of the park. I'm terrified. I'm coming off the couch from San Diego with not much experience in this terrain, let alone having a sled. And I'm just like just pretty gripped going down the backside to this huge, cracked out glacier. And it's all these blind rollovers where all of a sudden yep. Dane is like. Oh, and his buddy, Jamie Laidlaw, were like, I'm gonna go look over here. I'm gonna go look over here. If you don't hear from us, just like, just hang tight. Just set up this little anchor. And, <laughs> and I just clipped to an anchor. I have a video of this. I still like play every now and then. I'm just sitting there like, well, here we are. I'm just just tied up to this anchor and hanging above this this glacier. I have no idea what's below me. Everything's cracked up. And I'm just waiting to hear back from the rest of the party. I'm just alone. And eventually they came back and they're like, well, that way doesn't go let's go over here and we just hung we we end up making another camp and then they decided no after probing around they're like this isn't safe safe travel across this this glacier and we bailed so we went, went backwards and at that point we just ditched all our gear and we sort of separated Toby and Courtney did their own thing and my brother Jamie and I did our own thing but on our what we did was we ditched the sleds we got we got rid of those things so we went just to backpacks and then traverse out the Southern way. Yeah. And that was amazing. So ditching yeah. the sleds, we actually got to do a little bit of skiing. It still didn't really count, but what it did was it gave me a taste of what the, the what the rest of the Alaska range had to offer in terms of skiing. And like once you get away from Denali and that's, that's where I saw Pika glacier and Chris Davenport had just been in there right before us. And I, we learned this after the fact, the Jackson brothers had filmed there and, um, we saw all their tracks, but we were carrying these heavy packs and we, we had to get out of there. We had this timeline to get out and meet friends for pickup. So we didn't get to sit there and go ski around. We just had to get out of there, but it was a good exposure to the Alaska range. And it was a chance for my brother to point out all these wild objectives that you guys had done or he had done and just get the lay of the land.
1: Yeah. Ski touring's great for that for sure. And, um, um, So uh, yeah, you, I I don't know how we went off on that tangent, but.
0: (laughs) No, so you're, yeah, you're talking about like ski touring. So
1: I came away from, oh yeah. So to culminate the, in 2014 story, I was skiing after Dana down from McGonagall Pass and it's June. So there's just a little sliver of, of summer snow left in this, low angle drainage and it's you know scree on both sides and uh dana's a, a darn good skier and so i'm following him in my spantics uh full pack load and i caught an edge kind of hooked did a somersault and one ski ejected and the other didn't and uh the one that didn't my knee went through like a hundred and 50-degree rotation as I came to a stop. And my first thought was, that's how you spiral fracture your uh, tib-fib. Like, I get it. And we had a sat phone with us. I literally, in like two seconds, were like, we can call and get a helicopter. It'll just be really embarrassing. And like had all this flash through my eyes. Uh, and then I realized that it wasn't actually broken. I just, like my knee was all broken wonky and sore. So I picked myself up, kind of took a few deep breaths, continued on. And uh, like half an hour later, I could tell that just like my knee was not going to be feeling good. And we were about 18 miles from the road at that point. And I just said to Dana and Michael, let's get to the road today, because if we stop for the night It's going to like, my knee's going to swell up and be stiff and it's going to be like terrible after that. So we just need to get out today. So we just kept on walking and it was basically fine and I was able to walk like full speed. I could just tell that something wasn't right. And uh, anyway, something wasn't right. It took me six months to find out, but I had torn my meniscus and I had surgery uh, that next winter to clean it up. And After that, I said to myself, I really need to get a new pair of backcountry ski uh, touring gear and go light. And I just kind of have been obsessed, like thinking about that traverse we did in 2014. If you take, I was carrying steel crampons and an old school ice axe. Well, okay, if those were aluminum crampons and an ultralight ice axe, that would save me a pound or two. And then if I had had ultralight bindings instead of fritchy free rides, that would save me over a pound. And start thinking about it and it's like, wow, well, I could probably save like 10 pounds just by like updating my gear to, you know what's what's out there. And then like, okay, well that could make my pack 10 pounds lighter or, that could give me five more days of travel time, if you're going two pounds of food a day, like. And so, think about like expanding, you know, your your operating range. If let's you say like a fifty pound pack is like a decent heavy pack, you know, but like you can manage it. And if you're a good advanced skier, you can still move around in terrain and stuff. Well, then like you know, can you go for like? 10 days can you go for like two weeks you know and uh that's kind of a a fun equation to try to figure out
0: it's a it's a like a i mean i know there's spreadsheets for this stuff the formulas of trying to calculate rations of food but yeah there's gear that you just can't cut like you can't cut crampons you can't cut the ice axe or some of these mandatory tools but upgrading them certainly works in the favor and i don't think i'll we get complacent we know that we're like well it's what i know and i think a lot of people that get in the back are like well it works but they don't know any better and that's always what we do at the ski shop it's like well try this end try this end of the spectrum you probably might not you know you might not might not be for you you might not settle on it but at least you know you know it's out there and you can get a taste of it yeah so that hopefully you know next time you go on these big trips you know we see it a lot with um, you might see it a lot being a guide, people get their stuff and they just either want to use their existing gear and you yeah. might have something a little better and you want to like, Hey, try this or try yeah. my stuff out.
1: Yeah. I, 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 you, you do see it. And I think there's kind of two dynamics. One is the, you know, just people having old school gear that's kind of heavier and and behind the times, but wanting to stick with it and, and you know, like they like what they got. Um, but the other, which I think is more insidious is, you know, the tyranny of excess, the tyranny of consumerism. And what I mean by that is we're all super privileged to live in this day and age when like the shit's so good, it's all so good. And I, having worked in the outdoor industry for 20 years, like I've, I've had a front row seat to seeing it. There's not that much difference between like the top of line stuff, you know, across different manufacturers, but it's all so good compared to, you know, yeah, of course, compared to like what they had a hundred years ago, even compared to what they had, we had 25 years ago, 30 years ago when I started, Uh, in the outdoors. So we collect a lot of it. And then when it comes time to pack for the trip, you got three different jackets and they kind of all serve the same purpose, but you want to bring them all. You got, you know, that... Oh boy, you got, you know, the fancy ice climbing crampons that cost you a lot of money but you're going on a ski tour and so but you don't you know want to bring the the right aluminum crampons I don't know there's just people have a lot of stuff and the hardest thing is just to leave stuff behind
0: think about that with like a camera lens yeah, yeah which camera lens do you bring do you bring a couple you know it's you get so easy to get caught up in the overpacking world and sometimes if you eliminate those choices it's just better. You just work with what you got. But yeah, I, I just think that from the, I see a lot of renters come in the shop that like, for example, this guy came in with his boots yesterday that, um, he's never like ski toured in them before. And I'm like, I don't know, these are the best boots. And then I go and I look at his heel, um, insert and he, They had done something with the heel piece, but the grooves weren't cut out in the actual heel piece, but the insert was there. So I had to dremel, take the dremel out. And I'm like, I hope you're okay with this. I'm gonna dremel this out. I would switch out the boot. I would ideally get him in a pair of my boots, something lighter and more performance oriented or or for the touring. And But he's got Raynaud's, Raynaud, what do you call it? The cold? Yeah. Raynoids, something like that. And so I was like, all right, we'll keep your boots. So I took the dremel out. And I just like cut in these little grooves and I'm like, all right, I hope this goes well for you. Like I hope these boots work. But he was set on his gear and it's like, uh, it's, I don't know. It's like you must see people come into guiding that just bought something off the shelf and they've never used it. And
1: Yeah, I think in some ways it's more uh, prevalent in climbing because climbing, it's all about the arsenal of technical – rack you're bringing with you and a lot of people um especially when they're starting out they sort of try to substitute you know more gear for for more courage and smart decision making so you see guys starting up thin air on cathedral ledge and they have like double set of cams to number four and like 17 locking beaners just in case. And it's like, yeah, that's, you know, you're, you're being, you know, there's a, it's a fine line between being prudent and just carrying a lot of shit around for no reason. (laughs)
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, like, I don't know any of that terminology, but I just can imagine someone with a harness full of crap to do a pretty entry-level climb. On Cathedral Ledge,
1: yes. Ski touring, I, I guess it's it's a little less. I mean, because you know, you're bringing it's more about updating your gear, but you're everybody has skis, skins, helmet, I, you know, Avi gear.
0: I could wear the same clothes every day of the winter, yeah, and be totally content. But yeah, you're right, the consumerism. There's a new color, there's one new technology. You you know, you deal with it with you were a mountain hardware or are a mountain hard, hardware athlete, where, Was. was where they're sending you a new kit and you're like, yeah. well, what's wrong with my old kit? Like, oh no, you need the new, you need to yeah. photographed and the latest and greatest. And it's kind of, you know, that it just feels weird sometimes when you're like, but I don't need much. Like I I you just it's fun to make your kit... For me in the backcountry, make it as condensed and efficient as possible. Only carry what you need. And this is what I went through early this season. I made a what's in my kit video, and it was really a 45-liter pack that can carry everything, you know, from the first aid for some of the avi gear, safety gear, all that stuff, and then just boom, you got it. Yeah. Like trim it down. Yeah. But while we're on the topic of gear, what if um, someone wanted to do a fun link up like the pinnacle – Diagonal link up and practice some of these mountaineering skills. Like, how would you suggest that someone gets that exposure?
1: Yeah, I think um, definitely the ravines are are pretty serious terrain to be respected, and so I would recommend you know um, taking your time to work into to operating in that environment, especially Huntington's. Um, It's funny thing about Huntington's. That's the only place we really like regularly see fatalities in winter from, from winter ice climbers. Um, And, and uh, I just was talking about this with Michael the other day, actually. So um, it's, it's easy to lose control. I would recommend, Getting a solid background in cramponing and being able to feel confident on cramp with the crampons and an ice axe on moderately steep snow and ice is crucial to being a well rounded ski mountaineer. I mean, I would imagine most people listening to this podcast are. Probably better skiers than I, and and they can you know shred down steep steep terrain. But what happens when there's a a sheet of ice and you have to transition from skis to crampons, you know, because you don't you can't ski oh. down the central bulge. Say? Down
0: down climbing is yeah. terrifying. Yeah. It's a whole separate skill.
1: Totally. And it, the thing is, there's good news here. It's easily like master. It's it's like riding a bike. It's like you crash the first two days you do it, and then by the third time you get up and you're a little wobbly. It's it's a muscle memory thing. It's a you have to learn the balance point. And there are some basic inconsistencies for why skiing doesn't translate to cramponing. For instance, skiing we're always taught to be on our uphill edge, and and be on our edges. In cramponing on low-angle terrain, you want to be flat-foot, which means you want to like roll your ankles and and make sure the bottom of your feet are perpendicular to the slope to get maximum security. So you just need to go out for a few days and practice it. And the best way to do that is probably just to dabble in some ice climbing for a couple days, even if ice climbing isn't your thing. Um, you know, get a friend to take you out, uh, hire a guide, do something to. Just to go out to a, a beginner, you know, ice climbing, mountaineering area like Willie's Slide or, um, you know, one of the numerous top roping areas around the whites and, you know, practice, really get a feel for being in crampons. And um, and then you can work up to, you know, being able to do something like climb pinnacle and ski down diagonal. Yeah.
0: I think that's really you know, got my, my brain spinning a little bit is you might not know that ice climbing is your thing. Like maybe this whole world, maybe that, that, um, the mountaineering side of things is your thing and you just don't know it. So you got to go and try it. I suggest everyone get out and do a little bit of some sort of ice climbing.
1: Well, yeah. I mean, if winter's your thing, being proficient with an ice axe and crampons is pretty like mandatory.
0: Right. But also like right now we just got this freeze the skiing's going to be terrible but the ice climbing's going to start to build back in pretty nicely right
1: yeah absolutely and that's probably the answer to why i one one big piece of it to why i kind of skewed more towards being a climber than a skier in my 20s was that living around the whites to my eyes back then there was eight to ten weeks a winner of pretty good ice climbing and maybe two to three weeks a winner of good skiing. And, uh, and, you know, the ice climbing, you didn't have to pay for a ticket ever. So, um, uh, you know, now with some of the amazing stuff that, you know, is happening with new trails being cut and just – you know people are looking at the terrain with with the uh, you know new eyes i think there you could definitely find backcountry skiing a lot more you know more often than that but
0: yeah and you're seeing with um the ice climbers are yeah. ice climbers are hunting down ice in remote areas using skis to just try to find these little pitches just to do something different and get into some of the more wilderness areas which is pretty cool to see you know i know that climbers have been doing that for a long time but yeah. it just it just really changes your perspective on what you can do out there and I think that yeah. anyone that wants to um, improve their skill set these these like mountaineering skills getting a guide and it just goes beyond the the physical skills but just learning about what goes into planning for some of these winter trips if someone went out with any one of you your guides or yourself you're gonna get a whole lot more than just the nitty-gritty basics there's a lot that goes there's a lot of experience Um That will trickle down into one of these outings with a guide. Um, So, yeah, I highly recommend if anyone's curious about getting, you know, I guess enhancing their winter knowledge and skill set to just give ice climbing ice climbing a try, and then maybe um, that will be some sort of direction. Because I don't see a lot of overlap between ice climbers and backcountry skiers. You know, it's just one of these things in New in New England that there's only a handful in in i guess percentage wise it's a really small percentage of people that do both it seems like the both of the communities are they're sort of separate but i like to see some of that being bridged more
1: yeah yeah i think um i think that's the way it's going mm-hmm. certainly i mean you go to europe and look around the you know the midi when you're riding up the Telefreak, and you try to pick out the climbers from the skiers and it's it's almost impossible because you know everybody's got two ice axes on their you know backpack and a pair of fat skis and they might be going out to do a ice climb they might be going out to just ski some pow but they're going out with almost the same exact same equipment
0: mm-hmm. it's fun it's so fun to bring that extra gear and put it to use it's just it breaks up the monotony of the everyday approach to skiing. So if people want to find, uh, Freddie, check out cathedral mountain guides.
1: Yep. Cathedral mountain com. We'd love to hear from you.
0: And then if you're uh, looking to get a little indoor climbing in, check out salt, salt pump in Scarborough, Maine, um, they've got a really good operation going on over there. So thanks, Freddie. Appreciate you taking the time out of your busy, busy schedule to, to meet up and, um, yeah, hopefully you enjoy the rest of this winter. What, what's what's next? What is your little like? Uh, give me give me like two things you're working on right now.
1: Right now, I'm um, I'm about to drop in on a pretty busy you know couple months of of winter guiding, and simultaneously to that, I'm trying to to wrap up our documentary film about Alaska that we've been. Working on for a long time, so.
0: Would it qu- quickly? What is that?
1: That's uh, the sanctity of space. It's been a long-term passion project of mine with Renan Ozturk, uh a noted cinematographer and climber. And Renan and I did a series of expeditions to the Moose's Tooth, to uh, ultimately do this traverse of the of the skyline of the mountain. And, uh, we've been, we've been making a movie about it ever since.
0: <laughs> cool. One that? what is, is there ever a release date for this?
1: There isn't a, a hard release date, but I, I think it's, when,
0: when did you start filming this? What year?
1: Like literally we did the climb in 2012. Okay. So it's been eight years. <laughs> That's crazy. And we, we, uh, I mean, it's we can do a whole separate podcast about the movie when it comes out. <laughs> yeah, I'll do it behind the scenes. <laughs> but um, you know, it's just it, it, everything ev- everything really worth doing takes time. Takes.
0: That's really cool because something like that can just get sit by the wayside, you know? Like because you guys have so much other stuff going on that it's amazing that you guys keep that moving.
1: Yeah it it really is. I can't believe it and. uh There's definitely been times when when (laughs) both Renan and I were ready to just, like, kind of throw in the towel on the whole thing and and kind of the other guy had to kind of, like, pull him back from the edge and keep keep it going forward. But, I mean, we've reached a a tipping point where I feel, you know, confident saying it'll happen, uh, you know, this year. So, yeah.
0: Look forward to that and hopefully... um you stick around long enough and the conditions will change and we can get out. We're due.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I want yeah. to
0: do a little mixed route,
1: something fun. Yeah. I'd love to do that. And, uh, this, this will be a good winter for it. Cause I, I don't have any big trips planned. So, uh, I'd love to get out with you.
0: Cool. All right. Well, thanks Freddie. I appreciate you sitting down and we'll catch up soon.
1: Thanks Andrew. Thanks for the coffee.